Father in heaven, we thank you so much that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And you've called us and lifted us. And Lord, we have been given life to bring you glory and to celebrate you. And today, Lord, I ask that you would open up the eyes and the ears of your people, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would give us understanding and insight that we might glorify you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you for being here. And uh, we had a great Easter. Uh, So thankful for those who have trusted Christ, for those who have committed their lives to Christ, uh, those who have been baptized, and uh, just thankful for what God did. Now we're resuming back into Exodus. We'll be here for just a few more weeks. And uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Exodus 14. Now I want to give you a little information right up front. Uh, There's some information that I'm going to share with you this morning, Uh, a lot of the background that comes from Jewish commentaries from Abraham Sarna and uh, Bernstein. And so as I share some of this, it's probably not going to be stuff that you've typically heard uh, growing up. Now, do we believe that uh, these commentaries and these backgrounds, uh, and this, by the way, some of this commentary uh, is thousands of years old. Uh, So as we share some of this, we don't believe that it is what we call infallible. We believe the Word of God is infallible. In other words, it was, is without error. It's not a mistake. But uh, we try to interpret it. I'm fallible. You're fallible. We're all fallible. We, we make mistakes, and we seek to interpret the best that we can. And one of the ways we do that is through, uh, or that pastors do that, in case you're wondering. I, I know you think that we just know everything, uh, but the truth of it is we, we have to read and study just like you do. And uh, so there are commentaries that I'm, I'm using uh, that are Hebrew commentaries. And so I want to share some of that information as we walk through this process. And so if you have questions after, feel free uh, to come and visit with me or ask questions online, however you want to do it. You're welcome to do that. Uh, and as we look at this text, uh, I've entitled this sermon, uh, Lessons from the Red Sea. There's a, another book out, if you have any interest in it, by Rob, Robert Morgan, uh, who does a book on the Red Sea. If you would like further understanding and further details about that. Uh, it's interesting, I was reading an article this week, uh, and it's literally called The Rise of Overconfidence. And it goes like this, that today, because of Google, because of TV, because of all of our, our computers and all the access to information that we have, that most of us generally want to feel like we know a little bit about everything or a little bit about just about anything. And so, uh, matter of fact, Jimmy Kimmel did a deal uh, where he went out and he interviewed uh, teenagers and adults that were going to this big band fest and they made up all these fictitious names and they asked him what do you, have you ever heard of this band every one of them would go yeah i heard them they're great they're awesome they put up all this neat energy and you know just very general answers and we see that in all in all areas of our life don't we and what this psychiatrist or psychologist have found as he did this study what people will generally if they just know a little bit they'll make sure that they share that and act like they know a lot more so if it's sports, uh, if it's science, uh, if it's the economy, uh, whatever it is, we will probably have heard of the subjects, and then we'll start expounding. The typical person will expound and give off the, the aura that we probably know more than we do, okay? And uh, that's, that's kind of who we are. It's a, it's a pride issue. Well, what's interesting is the people of God here, the Israelites, 10 plagues have come upon the people, 
and they've been freed. And God has put them in a position where they're really much wealthier than they've ever been because the Egyptians gave them wealth, gave them everything that they would need as they were leaving. And God had prophesied that he would do this. The Bible prophesied this. And so they're leaving, and they've got uh, with them all that they can carry. And when they leave, uh, they're not going to take the most direct route. God's going to take them uh, really kind of on a zigzag. Uh, for just a second, let's look at this. Uh, I'll, I'll refer to this later, but here's kind of a map. So you see right here is where the, uh, this is where the area of Egypt that they've been staying in, okay? Matter of fact, they've literally lived in the area of Goshen. That's where the, the Hebrews have been living, living. And so now they're going where to? They're going to the promised land. And where's the promised land? It's Canaan. It's over here. Here's Jerusalem. This is where it is. So if you were going to go the most direct route, and matter of fact, it was probably the best, quote, road of the time. You'd go right here. It was called at that point the way to the land of the Philistines. The Philistines meaning the sea people. But this was, this was a dangerous area, and there would have been a lot of war. Matter of fact, God even says that, and he's also training them. So what do they do? He takes them down here, and they go through Etham uh, to uh, Migdal, and then Pahahirath. And Belzephon, and this is where the story will end right here. This is where we'll see everything transpires. And so uh, God doesn't lead them this way. He leads them this way. And then we're going to see in just a moment that even after they pass by this way, they come back. Uh, they, matter of fact, they turn back. So we know that from Scripture, and uh, we know, and again, let me say this, this is uh, one of the scholars' best rendition of the route. We don't know the exact route, okay? We, we actually don't, but this is what makes the most sense. Certainly, you can find commentators who will disagree. But as we look at these lessons, it's interesting how the Israelites are going to feel so confident. Matter of fact, we're going to see here in just a moment that they were leaving and they were marching out defiantly, which means basically a, in a spirit of victory, in a spirit of war. And so they're, they're leaving defiantly, but it's not going to take much to change their attitude and their perspective. They're probably a little overconfident at this point. God has delivered him. They're feeling like the favored people, and, but yet there's still more to come. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to chapter 14. And I want to go ahead and do this. My wife says I should not do this. She said, you shouldn't give people all the points up front because they may not pay attention after that. And uh, I said, well, honey, I don't know that that's what stops them right now. So, but nevertheless, I want to give you eight points, and you'll see these as we go through. You'll see these principles, but eight principles, eight lessons that we can glean for our lives today that we can learn from the Red Sea. Number one is God knows exactly where you are. Uh, whether you got there because of, uh, because of sin and mistakes that you've made or whether he's directed you there, God knows exactly where you are. Number two, pray always. Number three, your life is about God's glory, not about your safety. Let me say that again. Your life is about God's glory, not always about your safety. Now, safety is important, and we put certain protocol uh, in place to make sure that we're safe here on Sunday mornings, but that's not the premium goal. Your goal in life is not just to stay safe. It's not to exist. It's to live and to live for His glory. Number five, Number four, excuse me, recognize your enemy, but focus on the presence of the Lord. Recognize that there are those who seek to kill, steal, and destroy you. Be cognizant of that, but keep your, your focus on Christ. Number five, do everything you can and trust God with what you can. Now, 
this is Oswald Chambers' definition of faith. If you've been coming here for several years, you've heard me uh, share it about 100 times now. Uh, but do everything that you can. As a matter of fact, he literally says, do everything that you honestly and ethically can and trust God with the things that you cannot do. And we'll see uh, that that's very uh, prevalent in this text. When in doubt, just take the next logical step of faith. So many times we get polarized, we get stuck, and that's just where Satan wants us to be, is stuck. And sometimes we go, well, I don't know what God wants me to do next. Take the next step, the next logical step, the st- only step that you can take. Number seven, God uses your circumstances to grow your faith for his glory. And number eight, praise, think, and worship him always. We'll see at the end of this, uh, they break out into a song. Matter of fact, we'll sing it right after this sermon, uh, Moses' song. It's really a combination of three songs. Moses wrote three songs. He wrote one, uh, Psalm 90, another one in Deuteronomy 32, and then we'll see in chapter 15 uh, that Moses writes this song. So as we look at this text, with that thought in mind, let's begin. And then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. Now, right there, we see that word, turn back. So they've already gone this way one time, and God tells them to turn back, to go back. I want you to take a few steps back, and I want you to turn around. And and encamp in front of Pahirath and Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. Okay. Now, those are some big words. Let's go ahead and put that scripture up there, if you would. And I want us to just understand this real quickly, if we, if we can. Do we have the scripture for today? Okay. You should bring your Bibles, because sometimes this doesn't work, ladies and gentlemen. So always bring your Bibles. We have Bibles in the back. Pick those up when you come, and uh, that would be great if we can have Bibles. Um, you know, people didn't have these screens for many, many years. So, uh, with that said... If you have your Bible, then you see Pahirath, uh, Migdal, and Belzephon. Now, what are these three cities? There you go. Um, what, what are these areas right here? Well, Pahirath, uh, studying, and again, this is from the Hebrew commentators, means house of deity, house of deity of Hathor. Now, Hathor is one of the Egyptian gods, and um, she is the uh, goddess who ushers men and women into death into the next life, okay? So this is the area that they're there. So God has told them, I want you to go down here to uh, Pahirath and this area next to Migdal. And Migdal simply means f- fortress. It's a fortress. It would have been a small, uh, small group of troops, maybe 15, 15, 20, we don't know how many, a very small group that would be up on a fortress that they can see if the enemy's coming, they can see all around. And they're probably the ones that have notified Pharaoh that we're going to see here in just a moment <clears throat> that, hey, all the Jews are down here. All the, the Hebrews are here. And so they're, at, they're right in front of Pahirath, the, um, and there's probably a shrine. It, it seems that there was a shrine back there in that time, according to Jewish historians, and the sea. And then in front of Baal Zephon. Now, who is Baal? Well, he's the Canaanite god. We've all heard of Baal before probably, uh, but he was a Canaanite god, but the Egyptians adopted him too, and he was the god over the sky, over the thunder, over the lightning, also uh, over the sea, okay? He had conquered another god and got that, but Zephon. Now, it was believed, the, the, the Hebrew scholars believed that there was still a huge idol right in front of the Red Sea at this area, and it's, and it's an idol of Baal Zephon. So get the picture. 
There's the house of the deity of Hathor. In front of them, there's the sea, and there's this huge idol of Baal Zephon. And then to their left, if we could see it, there's this wilderness, there's this area. And so they are kind of in this mouth area, okay? And God has told them to encamp there. Now, it's very interesting. Why would God tell them to encamp there? Now, remember there were 10 plagues, but there's still a couple of Egyptian gods left. And back in uh, Exodus 12, we talked about this before, that the Bible tells us that God was exercising judgment on the gods of Egypt. So he's defeated those gods, but now they're out of uh, the Egyptian basic area. They're, they're way south of normal Egypt. They're on the uttermost parts of, of Egypt, and there's still an idol there. The other thing Jewish hist- historians tell us is that all the idols in Egypt were destroyed. They were either destroyed by the hailstorms or they were destroyed by the Egyptians because they got so fed up and so frustrated uh, that they weren't able to protect them or do anything for them, and they were f- afraid of Yahweh that they destroyed them. Okay? Now, again, uh, that is historical commentary, uh, and I'm going I'm to go with Sarna on that. Uh, but with that understanding, <clears throat> now Pharaoh sees there still is a God. There still are gods of Egypt. There's Belzephon, the one for the Canaanite, the one that's always been here, and in the house of Hathor. And matter of fact, <clears throat> they're stuck right there. The gods must have led them to that point. And so this will strengthen Pharaoh's resolve. And matter of fact, as the, as the writer says here, harden the heart of Pharaoh. So we continue here. They've been camped facing the sea right in front of them. And for Pharaoh will say to his people, they are wandering in the land. <clears throat> hey, they're stuck. That's literally what he's saying. They're stuck. They're in a position <clears throat> from a strategic standpoint, from a militaristic standpoint, they're in an awful spot. They are wandering in the land, and in the wilderness has shut them in. Now, again, Hebrew commentary says that it, they're seeing this, that the gods, Hathor, and certainly Belzephon have hemmed them in. So what is Pharaoh thinking? I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Uh, we, again, on this text, you can take that literally, that God hardened his heart, which is not problematic. Some interpreters said this was a type of writing since God was ultimately sovereign and he's causing all things. He's in charge of all things. It's attributed to him. Uh, but also, if we look at Romans 1 and uh, also if you looked at 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, the Bible tells us right there that God gave them over. In Romans 1, God gives us over occasionally to our, the lust of our flesh, to our own selfish desires. If you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 31. Uh, and so sometimes God just takes the lid off, the protecting covering off, and said, okay, be who you want to be. Uh, and it's like God is saying, I'm hardening your heart. That's what's in your heart. Take off. Again, how you interpret that is immaterial at this point. But it says that his heart is hardened, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians will know what? That I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord and that they did so, okay? And that's exactly what's going to happen. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled and the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. You remember what uh, the people told uh, Moses each time or told the Pharaoh each time when it was time to leave? Let us go. If you'll go back and look in Scripture, I know it's not like this in the movie. Let us go that we may serve. Let us go that we may worship. Uh, eight out of t- ten times, that's what happens. 
Let us go that we may worship, that we may serve. But now Sarah is saying, I want you to come back and serve me. His ego is starting to be stirred. And he recognizes, he's recognizing the fact that I, there's nobody to run my bathwater. There's no one to make bricks for me. There's no one to build buildings for me. They've been dependent upon the slave market of the Israelites. And so he made his chariot and took the army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots. This was the most devastating instrument of war in ancient times. Uh, and the Egyptians were very versed in it with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out what? Defiantly. They're cocky. They're going out and they're cocky, but the truth of it is uh, they really hadn't done anything. God's been doing it all. We continue here. And it says, The Egyptians pursued them and all the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them. Now that word overtook in the Hebrew literally means that they are in a strategic position, that there's no escape now. That's what it means to overtook. So it doesn't mean they're, they're literally on top of them. It means they've come to that place where there's nowhere for the Israelites to go. And he encamped at the sea by Pahirath, Pahirath and in front of Baal-Zephon. And Pharaoh drew near, and the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Remember, they were defiant. didn't take long. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die and, and, and left us here in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It would be better for us to serve them obviously, to serve God. Yes, the ten plagues have happened, but now we're in a predicament, and we're hemmed in, and this is where you've placed us. You've placed us over here before the house of deity of Hathor. You've placed us over here before Baal Zephon, and now the army's coming, and the sea's before us. We have nowhere to go. But you know what they really said at the end of chapter 4 in Exodus? They, they bowed down their worship, and they said, oh, thank goodness. You know, Moses has come to save him, save them, and they bowed down and worshiped. But now things are tight. Now things are difficult. We continue here, and it says right here in the Scripture, in verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. I'm going to make this easy for you. I want you to fear not, I want you to stand still, and I want you to shut up. Okay? That's basically what he's saying right here. And you're going to see the salvation of the Lord for today. And for the Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. We see that occurring in, in verse 25. You only have to be silent. Be quiet. Don't moan. Don't groan. Don't complain. Just stop and watch. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Take the next logical step. I know the ocean is there, but take the step. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea. Divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go after them. And I will get glory uh, in, in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, we've talked about this. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's my interpretation. Uh, Jesus has been in existence forever. 
He came in the form of man 2,000 years ago, but he has always existed. And who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. So he's been before them. Now he's going to be behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of, the, of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness. In other words, there was darkness on the side of the Egyptians, and there's light on the side of the Hebrews. And there was a cloud of darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptians into panic. It's exactly what God had said he'd do. All right, so the children of Israel are walking through the dry ground, and now the Egyptians are following them. And as, as God said earlier, uh, he's going to fight on their behalf, and that's exactly what transpires. Here in 25, it says, The Egyptian forces are in panic, clogging their chariots and their wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel for the Lord, El Shaddai, fights for them against the Egyptians. The Israelites are noticing this. They are recognizing it. Excuse me, the Egyptians are realizing it. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. And the water came back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots, upon the horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and their sea turned back to the normal course when the morning appeared as the Egyptians fled, and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the host of Pharaoh that followed them in the sea, and not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters, a wall on them to their right and to their left. Thus said the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Matter of fact, we see that word hand used seven times in this text. It's the sign of power. It's the Lord's hand that overcame the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the great power the righteous right hand of the lord was used against them uh, against the egyptians so that the people feared the lord and they believed in the lord and in his servant moses and then they go into uh the song of moses part of the, the song of moses here in chapter 15 they give praise and glory so let's go through our points again number one god knows where you are god had put the israelites there on purpose why as some commentators say, for the 11th plague. The last idol is going to be destroyed. God is going to have complete victory over the Egyptians and over the Egyptian gods. Matter of fact, some Hebrew commentators believe that that idol was probably washed away as the Red Sea flooded. So God knows where you are. You may, ha- you may be here or you may be in the situation you're in because of bad choices or because just life has happened. Can I tell you this? God knows exactly where you are. Number two, pray. Pray. If this is a good time, you pray. If this is a bad time, you pray. If this is an in-between, we pray. We give thanks. We ask for his directions, for his guidance, and most of all, that he would be glorified. Number three, your life is about God's glory, not about safety. You know, it would have been a lot safer uh, for them not to have come back. There were a lot of other areas that were a lot safer, but God had a purpose for them being there. 
He didn't need for them to be in the safe place. He needed to be, for them to be in a place where they recognize only God could do this. And that's exactly what happened. Do everything that you honestly can and trust God with what you can't do. All they could do is do, what, matter of fact, this next piece of advice was step toward the sea. Now, a lot of them, they're slaves, so they couldn't swim for the most part. Maybe a few of them could. But it looks like we have nowhere to go, but they still had a little ways they could go. And when doubt comes into your life, take the next logical step of faith. God uses your circumstances to grow your faith for his glory. Praise, think, and worship him. I was reading another article this week, and uh, it was interesting. It was talking about teenagers. And what it said was that teenagers today, uh, over 50% of teenagers pray. But what was interesting, only about uh, 5% of them pray like this. Only 5% of them use confession, thanksgiving, and committing to be a part of the solution for whatever they're praying for. So most of the time it's just, you know, like a lot of us too, it's give me, God do this, God do that. So over half of teenagers will pray in that manner. But only about 5% pray in a spirit of repentance, giving thanksgiving, and committing to be a part of the solution. God, what do you want me to do? I'm going to do everything I honestly and ethically can, and I'm going to trust you with the rest. But God, I will do what I can, honestly and ethically. God, thank you that you provided what I have now. And God, I repent and I confess of my sins and of what I've done that separates me from you. Most people don't pray in that spirit. God, do this. God, do that. God, where are you? If you're real, do this. If you're real, do that. Hey, how do you like that as a parent when your kids talk to you like that? Work real well for you? Think about it. How are you praying today? Well, today we're going to have a time here where for a moment of silence where we can all just have a moment to repent and to confess our sins before God. We also, I want us to give thanks as we sing. That's exactly what they did in chapter 15. They began to sing. They begin to give honor and glory to God. And then thirdly, uh, because there are needs in our community and there are needs all around us. The men of Nehemiah will be here next week, but a couple of them are here today. Uh, we've invited you if you like. You don't have to do this, but at the end of this service, we're going to have time where you can bring your shoes down and just put them on the altar, and we're going to give all those shoes away, and you're going to hear a little testimony here in just a moment. So I want to give you the opportunity to do all three of those. I want to give you the opportunity for just a moment right now for us to just pray and just to confess to God anything that we need to confess before Him. And as, after you've done a time of confession, I want you to give thanks to God. And then, if you'd be so bold, I'm going to ask you in just a moment to take off your shoes and to bring them up here as an offering. Now, before we do that, we're going to have our regular offering. But I want you to just take a moment to confess and to give thanks. Thanks.